God is so good. Would you join me in praying? Oh, good God, it is to you we pray this morning and ask your help. We thank you this morning, Lord God, for all the things you have done for us even today, for life, for breath, for sight, for the use of our body, Lord God. We thank you. It is a sign of your goodness. And now we ask for help that you would guide us through these days that we have ahead of us, Lord. For we don't see what's around the corner, but the vision is clear to you. And so, Lord, we want to depend on you in greater ways this morning. And will you help us do that? And it is in your son Jesus' name that we pray and ask the good God and say together, amen. Amen. Wow. Uh, thank you so much, worship team, for guiding us and reminding us of how good God is. Of how good God is. And that's who we come to learn about this morning. And so I'm so glad you're joining. I, want to, I just really don't take it for granted. Uh, my name is Brandon. It's so privileged to be one of the pastors here. And uh, we're going to be continuing in our time from last week. So if you could grab, you know, your phone, your tablet, your pad, your notes, so that you can begin to also jot down some things that are going to be helping, that are intended to help you in your race of faith, in your life, in your everyday life. That's why we jump into God's Word. You see, it's a well-defined picture, the metaphor that life is a race. And that's what we were talking about last week, right? How life is a race. But it's so vivid a metaphor, in fact, that we tend to forget that this imagery intends to communicate something about the moral life for us all. Such as, like, it has a start. Life has a start. Um, in our moral life, there is a time lapse between the start and the finish how this race requires endurance, how this race has difficulties and discouragements, and most of all, how there in this race there is a reward when we cross the finish line. And we don't want to let any of those pieces of that imagery fail us this morning, okay? So we're going to keep that before us. And our text is going to be coming from Hebrews chapter 12, and we've been spending our time in two verses, verses one and two. Okay, and so this morning we're going to read both verses, but we're going to spend our time in verse two in particular. Last week we handled verse one. So if you missed last week, I want to encourage you to go to YouTube and search for last week's date on Bethany Church, West Covina, and you can listen to last week's sermon on verse one, where we walk through and spend time in verse one. So today we're going to hammer in and with a laser focus see all about verse 2. And I truly believe there are some things that God has for you. Whether this is your first or second time joining us here at Bethany, I believe, yes, that God has something for you. No matter what walk of life you come from, no matter your background, your age, wherever you are in life right now, there are gifts that God wants to bestow and offer for us all. So we're going to be spending time in verse 2 to rediscover and uncover some of those great gifts, okay? So would you join me in reading Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2? It's going to appear on your screen, but you can also open up a Bible app or, you know, something like that. That kind of helps you also follow along with us this morning. So beginning in verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses... 
Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he, meaning Jesus, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Well, you see, last week so many of you jumped in the chat when I asked you just to kind of list some hard problems that you're going through in life. Some things that you're going through right now that are just seem heavy and weighing on you. And, and I'm so grateful for all the many descript all the many responses that you get that you've given. And from that today, I want to talk to you on the topic how to face the race, how to handle hard problems. Okay, that's going to be what our topic is today, facing the race, how to handle hard problems. And this is in our broader series of winning the race, or excuse me, yes, racing, no, excuse me, running a race already won. But today we're going to hone in on some of those hard problems that so many of you shared last week. But before uh, we get any further, I was actually, my middle daughter, I was talking with my middle daughter, and she actually had her own encouragement about um, hard problems and how to get through hard problems. So I want you to listen to my middle daughter and just for a moment see what she had to share at the dinner table when we're talking about hard problems. This sermon is like about hardness. And I know what's hard for you trying to handle the coronavirus. But you know what helps me? My mom and dad getting me McDonald's. <laughs> the other thing that helps me is to calm down, count, and it also helps when like counting to like, I count to like um about um 13 like five times guys and that helps so you can try these at home and i really hope you try these because i know the coronavirus is like hard for you guys to handle and <laughs> so thank you avery for sharing your you know the hard problems but also the encouragement that so many of us i think can relate to and so many others responded in the chat last week with things that are so, that we are, I think, very familiar with, right? So we heard things like loneliness being a hard problem, finances, a financial picture being a hard problem, divisions in our nation being a hard problem, grief that we're going through, work. You all just flooded, and I just thank you so much for sharing these things that you're dealing with. And it is to those hard problems, to yours right now, that we want to lean into this morning, and I believe that God wants to help us with this morning. And to be, though, on the same page, I want to offer just a simple definition of what a hard problem is. Okay, and that's that a hard problem is for us is a heavy attack rendering you defeated. Do you see that right there on your screen? It is a heavy attack rendering you defeated. That's a hard problem. Because as you can imagine, the hard thing for you may be different for me. The hard things that we experience are different for one another. 
right? And so we glean, though, from even last week's time in verse 1 when it talked about hindrances. It was just talking about things that hinder us. And, you know, so things that hinder me likely don't really hinder you. But I find it hard. So this morning, it's going to be okay that what where you might find that thing, that heavy attack that's been trying to render you defeated, that's what I want to keep, I want you to keep before your conscience. I want you to keep um, at, the, at the top of your mind as we are talking about how to handle hard problems. They're going to be different. But like we even saw last week, many of us, we share in our hard problems. And the good news for you today is that God's word equips us with the tools on how to face the hard obstacles. So, how do we face the race and deal with the hard problems in front of us? Our answer is in Hebrews 12, verse 2, where if, if, we're to, if we were to put it succinctly, the answer of handling hard problems is that we face them. If it were to be just succinct, it would say, face them. You may not be surprised to hear that we have a tendency to explain away hard things. Hard things on the job. You know, we think there's no one really to ask for help from. You know, so we, we explain it away. Hard conversations in our relationships or in our marriages. We tend to think, well, nothing's ever going to change, so we explain it away. Hard things in our finances, we tend to think, I just need more money. If I only had just some more money, I tell you, I've thought that, some, I've thought that a few times in my own life. I just, I just had some more money in my own life. I'm talking about the last few months. If I just had, we tend to explain away hard things. And we can particularly do this when it's hard matters of faith. We could say, where is God? Or there is, there's God, God couldn't really be in my life. God couldn't be real if this is happening to me. We explain away hard things. But you see, after we use our best strategies, we are still left with the race. And now we're only left with the race being jarred and cynical about what it means to cross the finish line. So one of the things that happens when we face our hard problems is that we learn from a God who stands across from us in our desire to have life on our own terms. You see, for many of us, not most, but for many of us, if uh, our problem is hard because life is happening on terms different than we want. Can I get an amen? You know, that, I mean, our problems... We can, many of us tend to are, are define our problems as hard because life is happening in a way we don't want it to be happening. But what if I told you, if you were willing to place your life projects in the workshop of God's projects, that God would perform through your problem what your best efforts and best skills could never accomplish? You see, I'm reminded of James Baldwin, who is a, one of America's uh, most famous novelists and essayists from the mid-20th century, and he says this about facing problems. He says, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed unless it is faced. 
And I'm going to throw that on the screen for you, okay? Not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed unless it is faced. You see, so for us this morning, facing the hard problem is where Hebrews 12.2 is guiding us. And with God's help, we're going to get there together. All right? And because I believe this is your moment this morning to face that hard problem in front of you. And as we walk through Hebrews 12, 2 together, we're going to gain a vision on how to place our problems and life projects in God's great workshop of masterpieces. In fact, that's what Hebrews 11 is all about. But you can go to last week's sermon where I talked briefly about that. So let's jump into verse 2. And right off the bat, what does verse 2 say? The opening words, that phrase there, it says, fixing our eyes on Jesus. So if we're coming to the question of how to handle hard problems, it jumps out the gate by saying, fix our eyes on Jesus. So I want you to write down number one. And whatever kind of note system you have, write down number one with verse two. Follow Jesus. That's number one. Follow Jesus. See, right now, for many of us, our focus and perspective in life has been shaped by the troubles and problems we've been having. The problems that are in front of us tends to shape our perspective. You see, we find ourselves like the wise teacher of Ecclesiastes when he says, all things are wearisome, more than one can say, but there is nothing new under the sun, he says in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. That's going to be on your screen too. All things are wearisome. But more than one can say, there is nothing new under the sun. You've heard that before. There's nothing new under the sun. And often because problems are so heavy and significant, it consumes our field of perception, doesn't it? It tends to like overwhelm us. So at the outset, fixing our eyes is to shift our focus. So when in his old age and at the peak of his life and learning of wisdom, Solomon says to us, there is nothing new under the sun. What does he mean by that? Well, let me tell you, he means just what he says. He means just what he says. In fact, it's a critical theme for the entire book of Ecclesiastes. Maybe you're considering a, a book to go through for the next month or something of that nature for your Bible study. Ecclesiastes is a great book to go through because it's nothing new under the sun really sets the tenor for what, what is going on throughout the entire book of Ecclesiastes. It means there is nothing new under the sun. So, but so many of us right now, what do we need? Well, we need new opportunity. We need new strength. We need new vision. We need new provision. And all of us are in need of what? New life. So if we're honest, we've been like Solomon. If, on, if, if we're honest with ourselves as we think about what we've been doing in our workplace, or as we think about our spiritual life, or as we think about our family life, as we think about those hard problems that face us, we have been like Solomon, walking around in our days saying there's nothing new under the sun. We've been like Solomon, looking to solve our hard problems, and we've been looking for that solution under the sun. But the clarity
of Scripture. The clarion call of Scripture is that the very thing to satisfy our aching heart, to soothe our weary soul, to guide us amidst hard problems is a new gift not located under the sun. You get that? Somebody's going to get it before I'm done this morning. I know. Somebody's going to get it. So I want all of us right now, look to the horizon where you see the S-U-N and glean above and beyond the S-U-N and look to the S-O-N for solutions to hard problems. You see, newness is a project that does not exist or come or manufacture under the sun. As Solomon says, so in order to receive new strength for that problem ahead of you, new insight for whatever you see coming your way, you're going to have to look beyond the S-U-N and above the S-U-N. And you're going to have to look in the face, the S-O-N. Because why? As Solomon says in all of his great wisdom, there is nothing new under the sun. Can I get an amen, even at home? Somebody understands what I'm talking about. Fixing our eyes on Jesus means that we are done looking under the sun for the source for solving our hard problems. Fixing our eyes where they need to be means that we're making a shift in the paradigm and we're looking Above the S-U-N. And the reason why we can't follow the S-U-N is because there is nothing new there. That's the point of Ecclesiastes. That's the point Solomon is making. If, if you've looked all over, you searched under every rock, and you haven't found what you needed to to solve, to bring resolution to that hard problem. Perhaps you've been looking under the sun. See, God is not merely in the business of giving solutions, beloved. He's not just merely in the business of we bring our problems and then he says, well, this is how one plus one and this is how you equate it to two. He's not just in the business of giving solutions. God actually tends to leave solutions to us. And he provides us with knowledge, wisdom, relationships, so that we can, with a problem, create solution. We can come up with a solution with those things. You see, rather than God solving problems, rather than God even solving the problem we face right now, the Lord infuses new life into your problem. So it's not just merely working out what's there amidst your problem. He, doesn't, doesn't, he just doesn't take the raw matter, but he infuses from the outside new life. He infuses from above the sun new life so that there is solution to the problem. God specializes, write this down for me, God specializes in new life. Do you need the newness this morning? Are you tired of the old? Are you tired of the habit that you've been in and you just can't seem to get out of it? God specializes in new life. And consider the Israelites and the hard problem they had while wandering through the wilderness. What is, that, what is it that happens? Well, they forgot what God had done, the wonders that God had shown them. 
The Lord did miracles in the sight of their ancestors in the land of Egypt. God divided the sea and let them through it. God made the water stand up like a wall. God guided them with a cloud by day and with the light from fire all night long. The Lord split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them water as abundant as the seas. God brought streams. God brought streams out of a rocky crag and made water flow down like rivers. Each and every one of those experiences in Israel's life, what they experienced with God and their big problem was God infusing new life into their situation. Water from a rock. Hello, somebody. Come on now. Freezing gravity to allow water to stand up. He infuses new life. And to the problem, God specializes in it. And I know those examples, those sounded so good, right? Those are not my words. That's a Psalm 78. You see, that's Psalm 78 outlining. This is the way in which God's word continues to help us see that God specializes in new life. And just doesn't want to solve our problem, but he wants to bring something new into it. So this is what happens when we fix our eyes and follow Jesus. All right, you got that? Number one is we follow Jesus, and we just walk through how we, the way in which we do that, okay? It is fixing our perception. So then now as we go to number two, um, number two, so we fi- and the verse goes on to say fixing our eyes on Jesus, and then what does it say? The pioneer and perfecter of faith. So I want you to write down number two, um, accept help. Accept help. So after we fix our eyes on Jesus, now we're looking at the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. So we have to learn how to accept help. You see, pioneer and perfecter simply means it's Hebrews is telling us that Jesus brings faith to its most complete expression. You know, you want to know what faith in God of the Bible looks like? Maybe you've been wondering. A lot of people talk about the God of the Bible, or you've heard a lot of things, even in our culture. You know, you've heard a lot of things said about the God of the Bible, or about Christianity, about what it means to follow Jesus. You've probably heard a lot about that. But if you ever want to know what God really, what, what God looks like, you see, in life, in everyday life, you look at Jesus. And that's what Hebrews is telling us. He's the pioneer and perfecter of faith. He is the full expression of what faith in God of the Bible looks like. You see, it is in Jesus that we see the fully examined and perfect picture of God. And that's why it's so important to then focus on that. Right, so we can also then, I want you to think about what um, the, uh, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes chapter 9. You know, when he says in um, chapter 9, verse 1, I have seen something else under the sun. The race, yes, the race of faith, the race of faith that we're in. And I'm calling you to face that race. This is what Solomon says. Solomon says, oh, the race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. You see, in the race of faith, time and chance happen to us all, men and women. So we have to be willing to accept help in order to run it. 
Because when we're relying solely on resources that are under the S-U-N, well, the race isn't given to those just because you're fast. You see, we have to have a reliance on something else that is above the S-U-N. Okay, and so we have to be willing to accept help in order to run the race of faith. And I want to pair this together with something else. So where it says the, um, where it says the pioneer and perfecter of faith, I want to pair it where it, says, goes, where it goes on to say in verse 2 um, how Jesus scorning its shame. When it talks about Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame. I want you to think about what it means to scorn shame this morning. To scorn shame. Because Jesus' death on the cross was the most shameful experience of his life. And everybody knew it, let me tell you that. Okay, when Jesus spent his, enti- his adult ministry walking around doing miracles, you know, I mean, raising the sick and raising the dead, I mean, making fish and uh, two fish and five loaves multiply to feed 5,000 plus people. Jesus was known around his region for doing great things, was known around his region for solving hard problems. So what does it mean when all of a sudden this Jesus who says, well, I'm the Messiah, who says, I'm the king, um, and, and, who's, and excuse me, this Jesus comes and has done all of these things, but at the end of his life, so to speak, we see that Jesus hanging there on a cross, a a thorn, a a crown of thorns wrapped around his head. Well, all that stuff Jesus did, does it mean anything right now? Look at the kind of death he's dying. Because in that time, and those who read Hebrews in its context and culture, they understood some of these things that I'm explaining now, which is the way you die means a lot. In fact, people in that time, I mean, yeah, you can come and take, I can die, but a shameful death is what I'm more afraid of. I'm not so much afraid of death, I'm afraid of a shameful death. I'm I'm afraid of a way of dying that brings my family disgrace. You see, above all, the most shameful event in Jesus' life was his shameful death on the cross. And it's because it's one thing to die, but to die shamefully means that you cannot come restore your dignity. That's how they understood it in Hebrews. Read those who are reading Hebrews, those who are writing Hebrews. That's how they understood it. So then no matter how honorably you lived your life, your social memory is now marked by the way you died. So the death of Jesus brought shame to his name. So when it says in these two or three words, when it comes on to say scorning its shame, or in some versions it will say despising shame, for Jesus scorning the shame means to follow through on actions in obedience to God without regard of approval or disapproval of the social norms. Because Jesus was convinced that there is something greater to come. So in other words, scorning the shame in the Christian life looks like rejecting. And I want you to write this down. This is not going to be on your screen. It looks like rejecting that your hard problem is final. Scorning the shame for us everyday Christians trying to live our life 
as parents trying to keep our children under parental guidance, people who are working on the job, experiencing some hardships, people who are walking through grief, people, all of us who have financial issues, we're struggling with finding work even, all of us who have hard problems, that's me, that is you. It, we have to scorn the shame, by, and, and that means that we know that the hard problem doesn't have the final say. It is not the end. And that we are going to keep going because we're going to be obedient to what God is calling us to. No matter if it means approval or disapproval in social, in social norms. This is why Hebrews, early on in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 on your screen, where it says, listen to this. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Now, remember I told you Jesus was confident about something was greater. So let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may what? Receive mercy and find grace to what? To help us in our time of need. Man and woman, if we don't learn how to accept help in our hard problem, we are not just battling against those around us who may want to help. We're battling against the very plan and purpose that God has for us and our hard problem. Huh? Somebody's going to get it. God helps us. And God helps us in community. God helps us in being in a, in a small group. God helps us. God helps us being in a faith family. God helps us. God helps us through our friends and through our neighbors. God helps us. God helps us when we sit down with people who don't do life like us. God helps us. God helps us in community. God helps us through professional help. We, so for our hard problem, we may need to sit down with a professional, someone who's given their life and their passion to engaging how to help us in our time of need, sitting down with a therapist, with a counselor, or sitting down just maybe you just need a mentor. And a mentor is someone who's maybe lived a bit longer than you, and so they've seen life a bit longer than you, uh, seen a bit more about life, and so they can tell you about steps you're about to take. And they can guide you about some steps that you can take each day. Some of us just need a mentor to help. Some of us need a coach. And a coach is someone who's, who's maybe done what you're trying to do. Okay, a coach is someone who you're trying to start a business or you're trying to do a new endeavor or you're trying to, you're trying to start something that you've never done before, right? So a coach is someone who's done what you're trying to do. And so sitting down with a coach finding someone in your circle of influence or who's out there who's done something that you're seeking and saying, hey, y'all, I, I need some help. God helps us through those kind of relationships in community in those sorts of ways. So that's what, what's going on there in Hebrews chapter 4. And we all need help in our time of need. And, didn't, and, if, and you know what? If Jesus needed help, how much more will we, will we need help? Yes, Jesus needed help right when he was enduring the cross. When he was going down that road, that, um, uh, the road to Via, uh, Via Dolorosa to um, the hill called Calvary, he was carrying the cross that was heavy on him. He had been beaten. He had been talked about. He had been spit on. He had the crown of thorns. He had blood coming down from his head. He had the cross, and he was walking down that road. And you know what he did? You know what someone from the crowd did in his community? A guy named Simon, who's from a town called Cyrene, and said, Jesus, let me help you carry the cross. 
Some of us forget that. Let's be honest. Some of us forget that Jesus got help carrying the cross. We think Jesus did it all on his own because he's God, and he is. We think Jesus didn't ask for help because he didn't need help. Well, we see what really happened. We see that Jesus... Even the Lord asked for help. Excuse me. Even the Lord accepted help. And if the Lord accepted help, how much more would I need to accept help in my marriage? How much more would I need to accept help in my relationship? In this new uh, college endeavor that I'm about to start, if, if you're starting so many college students, you're just starting up in this season, and it's so new, it's online, you're in person, whatever the case may be, or you're returning back to your semester, if we don't learn how, if we don't learn how to accept help, you see, we're, we're blocking off what God is ultimately trying to do in our life. And I remember very succinctly in my first year of college not wanting to accept help, you know, because through high school, it's like I did everything I needed to do. Uh, you study, and I got through. But in college, boy, that was a different story. I remember oceanography, first semester in college, first quarter in college, and I got a C, the lowest grade I ever got in college because I did not accept help because I don't need it. I mean, all I do is read the books and take the tests. Well, then I found out I'm not so good at reading the books and taking the tests. I had to accept help. And with you starting off in a new college endeavor, you seek out very early, accept help. This is for all of us, though. Even Jesus accepted help. We can accept help. And so we see there, that's number two, accepting help. From the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, we can accept help. And he fully developed. We see the full image of God. Yeah, so we see the full image of God getting help carry the cross. Somebody's going to get that before the day is over, and you're going to shout about it because that's going to release you. That's going to release you from what you've been trying to do on your own. That's going to release you, from, and, and it's going to break a chain from what you've been trying to hold on to for so long, which is that you can do it all on your own. We're going to accept help today. We're going to accept help. So number one, all right, we're going to follow Jesus. Number two, we're going to accept help. Two more to go. Number three, we are going to count it all joy. Brandon, what'd you say? I, I think I said it right. Yes, count it all joy. Now, that sounds really oxymoronic in the situation and season that we're in, but you recall with us, and you see that in the, in the passage, right, in verse two, because it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. We've handled the scorning and shame part, but let's handle that first part. For the joy set before him. So how can Jesus have joy in this cross he's carrying, in this major problem that he has to live through, that he's walking through right now? Well, his brother, Jesus' brother James, knows a little bit about some of this, and he encourages us with this in James chapter 1, just, verse, just verses 2 through 4, where he says to me and to you, consider it, Pure joy, brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, already some of us are ready to check out because what does it mean? Didn't I tell you? God's word is equipping us with tools. It's okay if you don't feel like you have that joy right now. It's okay if you don't feel like you have what it needs to live this out right now. The word of God is infusing us with, with what we're going to need, okay, because we're getting our help from above the S-U-N and looking to the S-O-N to help us with what we don't have. Because he says, whenever you face trials of many kinds, and then it goes on to say in verse 3, because you know that the testing of your faith 
produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. You see, let me tell you something about faith. Faith in the good news of Jesus is not just some vague feeling that things will work out. And if we're honest, how many of us have been feeling that way lately? We, you know, we kind of say, we just have this vague feeling that something's going to work out. And we kind of identify that as faith. Because let me tell you, it's become evident to me that things will not just work out. Rather, faith is the conviction against a great deal of data and against long, long odds that God, the God of the Bible, is tenacious and that the God of the Bible is persistent in overcoming the daily deaths, the daily weights that we pick up and carry and that exist in our race. Faith is a conviction that the God against great data, again, things don't look like this when we look out in front of our race, but that the hurdles we see in front of us have already been overcome by the blood of the Lamb, have already been overcome by the strength and victory of the Lord. That is faith. That's faith. And because of that, God intends for us peace, joy, and rest. You see, and because of that, men and women, joy is not just some emotion. It's not just some illustrious emotion. Because of what I just described, right, and because of what James helps us with as well, joy is an anchor of knowledge. Some of, and I, some of you, it's going to take you, it, it's going to take us some time to process that, but I want you to process that, and it's going to take time to process that, not because you, not because you can't think through those, pre, those concepts, no, but because we have been trained. We have been living in a world that teaches us we just got to feel joyful, and joy is just an emotion, right? And we just got to smile even when we're hurting, and I'm not talking about any of that. Joy is an anchor of knowledge. And some of us need to take time to sit with that so we can talk ourselves out of what we have thought joy was and talk ourselves into the truth of the gospel. Joy is a what? Anchor of knowledge. And that anchor reorients our expression. It reorients our experience. That's what joy is. So joy then, listen to this, joy is sorrow reimagined? And you know what, the only, and I, I have come to this conclusion reading God's word, but sitting with my own sorrow, sitting with my own hard problems, sitting with my own thorns in my flesh, I've come to realize, yeah, as I read James and I see what Jesus was doing as he was holding the cross, but he, but it was the joy set before him, he endured the cross. That means joy is sorrow reimagined. Joy is sorrow reoriented. Joy is sorrow when it's put in its rightful place. So therefore, when we have joy, we carry sadness with us. And for you who, you, you felt that sadness, you felt that sorrow. And joy doesn't mean we throw it off if that's even possible, or we practice some escapism. But joy is that we carry the sorrow and the sadness but now we know what to do and where to put the sorrow and the sadness. 
When we face hard problems, joy is available to us, not because things are joyful, but because we know how and what to do with the problem we face. We follow Jesus. We accept help. We count it all joy. All right? So we're in our last stage now of what do we do with our problems? And before, actually just really briefly, before I go to number four, because we have in that passage as well where it says, and Jesus and for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, Jesus' honor is developed in the description of his position. He enjoys before God. And last week I told you, right? So some of us, I told you, I gave you, if you remember like what I did in my personal story in the race I ran in fifth grade. And when I was done running my 13-mile race, I finished, I went, got a pastrami sandwich, and then went and took a nap. I sat my behind down. Okay, and what is it we see? What is, is, is the same thing happening to Jesus? He finishes race, and then he goes and sits down at the right hand of God. And, I, and so there's, what does it mean to sit down at the right hand of the throne of God? Okay, so what we see happening here is Hebrews setting up the presentation that he, the Hebrews weaves into the text is that Jesus' honor is being put on display, that's what it means for Jesus to sit down at, I'm in the throne, at the throne of God, at the right hand, excuse me, at the throne of God. So first, Hebrews talks throughout the book about, repeatedly actually, about how Jesus sits down at the right hand of God. So you can read through the book of Hebrews and going to come across it quite a few times. Okay, but in the, because in the ancient world, seating order was based on the appraisal of relative worth. Okay, so where you sat was indicative of how important you were in the social structure of the day. Now, this might seem kind of distant for us, but actually it's not so distant. I can think of a way it applies right to my life and my childhood, and I think many of you can as well. I remember there's ways that this happened in my own house, right, and many of yours too. Think about when you're sitting down at the dinner table, you know, yeah, when we used to sit down at dinner tables, we... You know, you sat down with your family, and at my house, you know, I have three brothers and two sisters. And so my brothers and sisters, we managed to get on both sides of the table. But then you know who took their seat on both heads of the table? My mother and my father. And, did that, and that happened every meal. That's how we ate. You see, and let one of us kind of go sit down in my dad's seat or my mom's seat. You know, they weren't mean about her. And like, they was like, get out my seat, boy, and get in yours. You see, their seat was at the head of the table. That was their seat. And so what that meant, what, and that taught me something, right? And I, even still today, I see how that, it taught me that, well, yeah, well, they, they, have a, they, ha, they play a role in this house. They play a role in this family. And they, they sort of, not sort of, excuse me, and their seating at the table says something about their position in our family, that they're at the top of it. You know, and so I look to them for guidance. We look to them for daily conversation and dialogue. But that's just one way in which, again, a small example, how the thing that's happening right here in Hebrews happens often every day in our own houses. And even still today, actually, I, when my, my family would sit down for dinner, yeah, I'll sit at one end and my wife will sit at the other end and my daughters will sit in the middle, you know. Um, and, but you know what? When a guest comes over, my mother-in-law or, you know, father-in-law or when a guest comes over, I'll say, you know what, can you sit at the head? You sit right there. Or I say, you sit right there, and I'll go sit somewhere else. Because it was a way for us in our homes often to show honor and favorability 
okay? That is what's happening here in this passage. We are just seeing favorability from the creator of the universe. And God gives Jesus the closest seat to himself. Have you considered lately that facing your problems by following Jesus, accepting help, and counting it all joy is a way then that we receive our honor and joy, our honor, excuse me, from the Lord? And Jesus, so Peter is a guy who knows a lot about problems. And so Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Right now in your problem, in the midst of it, you're wondering, I mean, how can I ever receive honor from that? You're probably not putting in those words, but how can this ever turn out good? Just like Jesus when I talked about scorning at shame. Don't give up, beloved. Because when we don't give up, when we stay in the race, we will receive a crown, and that crown will never fade away. And that crown is a way of saying, you are important at my table. And that crown is a way of saying, you have a place at the eternal feast that will happen upon the finish line. And so Jesus is seated there at the what? Right hand. Well, simply in that day, right hand meant the hand of action. You know, I'm a left-handed guy, so, you know, I'm kind of mad about that. But in that day, you did everything with your right hand. And still today, we see how that pervades our own culture, how you know you righties. You know you got privilege. You know things are built around your right-handedness. And you know I'm telling the truth. That's why they got a left-handed store, so people like me can go and find something that we can just use, you know, for daily life. But you see, just in the same, in the same breath, right, right-handedness is a hand of action. It is a way of saying action and movement and progression, okay? So to sit at God's right hand doesn't, it's not saying Jesus went and had a seat. It went and said, it's actually saying Jesus went and he is doing the action of God's mission, when Jesus sat down at the right hand of God, he is neither sitting, okay, but he is moving about the world, doing the work of the Father. That is what it means to sit at the right hand. Christ is moving about the world, accomplishing the mission of the Father through the life of the church by the way of the Holy Spirit. Can I get one amen for tying the Trinity in on that part? That was actually pretty good because that's what's happening, and that's what Hebrews would have us hear. So now as we come to our fourth and final piece of how we, in, how we handle hard problems, we have the first one, which is what? Follow Jesus, right? Look up to the S-O-N, not the S-U-N. Our newness is not under the sun. Okay, follow Jesus. Number two, right? We have that one, accept help. Even Jesus, our Lord, accepted help on the way to um, Golgotha. We can accept some help in our daily lives, in our careers as parents. Three, count it all joy. It's not an emotion, but it is an anchor of knowledge that reorients how we experience and how we express our experience, okay? That's number three. And lastly, endure and engage. Endure and engage. Yeah, that hard problem, we endure and engage. Look at that passage altogether. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, 
scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, I know those verses are in different colors. It's not because I was trying to be creative and trying to do some like kind of coloring, trying to make it look like a coloring book, but you're going to see why. Because as we think about endurance first, Jesus endured the cross even though there was a point where he could avoid the hard problem coming his way. You get me? See, there came a point he endured the cross, but there was a time where he asked to avoid the problem. You remember that in Luke chapter 22? This is not on your screen, but Luke chapter 22, in around verse 42, when Jesus says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, your will be done. Jesus endured the cross because he was obedient to the Father. You see, what we have to do in our hard problems right now Right now, some of us, we want to practice escapism. Right now, some of us, we want to run from a hard problem. But you know what I want you to do? I want you to embrace that baby. I want you to grab that thing wherever you can hold on tight to that problem. Embrace it. Embrace the lesson here. Embrace the season here. And stop just trying to get past the problem but will allow God to help you go through the problem and see what you can consider what's in it. You see, you remember last week when we learned that the race of faith is not about place, it's about grace. It's not about getting in first, second, or third place. It's about crossing the finish line. And with God's grace, we will do that. You see, our role in getting through hard problems is not, and, uh, is not even... Well, let me restate that, actually. Let me restate this. So, firstly, we have to endure. And some of us, I said we practice escapism. So, let's not, not, not any longer. We're going to endure. That's what Jesus did to the cross. He endured it, right? Okay, so, but then there is something else that's happening in Hebrews that we kind of have to, that we have to name. There's something else that's happening in this verse that we have to name. Because not only do we stop at endure, I, am not, I have not come this morning just to tell you, you know what, stay with the problem. Stick with it. Walk by its side. I have not come. But when you endure the problem, the next step is to now. Are you listening? It is now, as, a, as, it, as the point says, to engage the problem. You endure it, but now you engage it. And you know, if we're honest, lately we have been enduring a whole lot of things. And that's good, right? And those of you, you know who I'm talking to, you've been in this season where you've just been stuck in enduring. You haven't thrown in the towel, but you've just been stuck in enduring. But notice the verse. It doesn't allow us to just endure and stop there. Notice the verse, we must endure, comma, reject that the hard problem is final, comma, and engage the mission of God, period. So that is why I color-coded it for you. So look at it, put that verse back up on the screen. What we're getting from Scripture here is not just to endure. So for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. What? Comma. Somebody, ever, somebody ought to say amen to the grammar of Scripture. The grammar of Scripture teaches us about our walk with the Lord, teaches us about how to follow Jesus. So there's not a period there. Just don't stop at enduring. So endure the cross. What? Say it with me. 
comma. Then what's next? Scorning and shame. What does it mean to do that? You reject the fact that your problem is the final thing in your life. You reject the fact that the problem you're going through is the last thing to define you, the last thing to define your walk. So you endure the cross, comma. You reject that this problem is last, comma. Now, you, what do we do? Sit at the right hand of God. So what does that mean for us? We engage in the adventure and the mission that God has for us in this world, period. Oh, thank you, Lord, for grammar and punctuation. I mean, the punctuation does it. We endure. We reject the final thing. We reject the failure as final. And then we keep on in the mission. Church of Jesus Christ, I speak to you now from the Word of God that you keep going, that we stay in the race, that we stay on what? Mission, this great adventure that God has put us on. The mission of your career should be a mission. Your relationship, you should see it as the mission, not just under the sun, but situate your, situate your marriage, situate your finances, situate every relationship you have above the S-U-N and in the S-O-N. And that is where we find the strength, the provision to, to continue in the mission, period. I'm going to ask the band to come up because we are going to pray, and I'm going to let you get in your week now that you have marching orders from Hebrews 12 too. I'm so glad you've come this morning. I'm so glad that problem, you brought it with you. You better grab it by the neck. You embrace it. You endure, and now you engage. This is just the beginning. God's best is yet to come. It's not over. In this race of faith, God wants to handle your problems through you. And sometimes we see that our problems just don't change. But the problems we're in change us. That's a part of God's purpose. Yeah, that's a part of God's plan. So if that's you this morning, you know you've been, you, this hard problem you've been dealing with, you're looking at it for what it is, and you're ready to make a change. You're ready to say, you know what? I've been looking all over, I've been looking all under the S-U-N for far too long. I'm ready to look for the S-O-N. I'm ready to fix my eyes on Jesus. If that's you, I want you to pray this short prayer with me momentarily. Or if it's you, you've been rejecting help. You've seen people come and help you. You've had people come and help you. You've seen opportunities through um, online or ways that you can get help, encouragement, whether it be community, helping your community or help professionally or spiritual help and strength pastorally. If you're making that change and you can say this morning, yep, I'm going to start accepting help. Or maybe you've been so down in the sorrow that you just, you haven't reimagined your sorrow. And it's just one extra step. You don't got to leave the sorrow. That weight is going to be there. But you can, in the grace of God, you can reimagine it, repurpose it. You can place that sorrow where it belongs, in the workshop of God so that he can turn it into a masterpiece and free you to have joy.
If you know you need joy this morning, you know what to ask from God. You know what to spend time with God on about. And lastly, if it's you this morning who's, you're saying, you know what, I've been enduring. I've been in this race of faith, and, and Brandon, I've been doing everything right. You know, I haven't lost the faith. I haven't walked away from God. Uh, but you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm enduring and I'm tired of it. Or it's not producing results. It's not producing the outcome that I know it should be. And you're ready to finish the sentence. Endure, comma. Reject that that failure is final, comma. And get on mission, the adventure that God has for you. And if that's you this morning, you know what you can ask God's help for. In your own way, I'm going to ask you just to say this prayer with me. It's a very short one. You can close your eyes wherever you're at or do whatever you do to focus and center on the Spirit of God who is here with us right now. And you can say this, God of power, the hard ways of this world are sometimes more than I can bear. Give me openness to your will. Give me stamina to stand in hard places when my faith requires it. In Jesus' name, amen. I feel lighter already. God wants to build your life one piece at a time. That's what Matthew 6, is all about. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will come after you when we seek God and follow Jesus. Watch him put your life together, piece by piece by piece. As we follow Jesus, accept help, count it all joy, and engage and embrace, you'll notice it's F-A-C-E. How do you handle your hard problem? You face them. Now allow me to bless you as we go, and may you live it out in your week and see what God does. And if you miss something, we encourage you. You can go back to YouTube and rewatch the whole thing. There's a word for you in this. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy, there it is, and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with the hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. God bless you, and we'll see you next week.